How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as well as the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual Do you understand how ridiculous that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually? It seems like so much of the church Anti-critical thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. Now, we've, when I first started this, I was doing this rhythm of Every other week, I would do some form of teaching or my own thoughts, and then the next week, I would do an interview. But I think I've done two to three weeks of great interviews. Last week, Monica Coleman, amazing. The week before, Brian McLaren, one of my spiritual heroes and authors who I've read for the past probably like 15 years. And now... I'm going to move into a time where I have some Q&As from listeners. So I put out something on Instagram and Facebook where people could write in just some of their questions as they're familiar with the podcast. So this will probably be long enough where I can have two to three episodes out of it. After I first got the questions, I didn't really look at them again for the most part. I sent them to a friend. So a special thing about this week is instead of me reading the questions myself, answering them, reading them out loud, in order for this to feel more natural for me and give me a little more sort of head and heart space to respond, I invited in my best friend for the past, let's see, I'm 36, 13 years, named Kevin Livermore, who if you, I call him Livy, so I'll probably be referring to him as that. So Livy and I have been best friends for 13 years. We lived in Orange County together at the time. Livy also went to Fuller. He has an MDiv from Fuller. He has worked in the church, outside of the church. He is an avid and a uh, voracious. I haven't used that word for a long time. Is that a word? Voracious? Voracious reader. He's doing a doctorate at Fuller right now. And I asked him to come in and ask other he's interviewing me he's using the questions of the listeners to interview me for a more organic more natural feel it gives him and i a chance to hang out even though we talk on the phone seven Every days day. a week <laughs> so i just want to welcome in kevin livermore my best friend livy come on baby it's good to have you in let's here. let's go let's get it here we go so from this point forward, Livy will be steering and leading the interview. So these are the questions people have sent in that he consolidated, added a few of his own. So this is all his flow, all of his organization of people's questions. So from this point out, Liv, take yeah. it away, man, however you want to do it. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me come on. Um, looking forward to hearing your answers. So the first you know, 15 questions or so are going to be from – the people who responded to your Instagram post. So first, the first one questions, is, so this will be a four hour interview. For me, yeah, basically. So the first one is how can we cultivate healing in ourselves and in others when we ourselves have been so emotionally and spiritually traumatized by the church? 
but yet we still want to be a part of the church community. Hmm. How can we cultivate healing in ourselves and in others when we've been hurt by the church, but a person, this Mm -hmm. person still wants to be involved in the church? One, that's a great question. And I think it's one a lot of people wrestle with who have some form of, you know, spiritual trauma, some hurts from the church, hurts from people within the church. And one, and I think this is always reflected in, in how my wife and I lead our own church at Imagine, is people have to give themselves the permission and the freedom to heal and to move forward at their own pace. You know, there is no... I left this old church after I felt hurt or I felt, you know, some form of trauma or I felt betrayed or whatever it is. And there's no timeline. There's no formula for healing and for real restoration. Everybody's journey is unique. You know, the, the, the shape of the healing is determined by the shape of the wound, right? Mm -hmm. So this person has been wounded like this, and their personalities like this, and their histories like this. So the shape of that healing is going to be unique based on the shape of the wound, the stage of life, and how people move forward. And the shape of another person's healing is going to look different based on the shape of the wound that they've had. So that's kind of where I would begin is, Mm -hmm. it's easy to put pressure on ourselves to be in a certain place by a certain time. Mm. And that's one of the mysterious and I think sometimes frustrating parts of the healing process is you don't, you don't know where you're going to be in six months. You don't know whether you are going to feel energized or whole enough to serve or cultivate healing in others in a year. You maybe thought, Hey, I'll, I'll within just give myself a three month break And then I'll be back in a place to work and to work for healing or to work for justice or to be involved in a local church or in a community. And three months goes by and you realize I'm just starting the journey towards healing. Mm -hmm. So I think one, people need to always give themselves the freedom and the permission to heal at their own pace. Like I use this phrase, you have to be able to move at the pace of grace. Mm. as it manifests in your own life. And that's going to be different from somebody else's. And I think, you know, that's a big part of spiritual growth and a big part of emotional maturity is learning how to listen to your own life, Mm. learning how to listen to your body, learning how to listen to your emotions. We haven't always been taught how to do that. You know, we haven't always been given the skills of self-awareness, of paying attention, of learning how do emotions manifest themselves physically within us. It's like when I always tell people when you get offended, for me, it's like a warm energy in my chest. Livy, whenever I offend him, he gets like this look on his face. I'm like, oh, damn, I heard him again. I got to apologize. My sarcasm went It's just my false self. It's okay. I get over it. I think it's also... You know, how do you cultivate healing in others is you have to listen to your own body and to feel like, am I strong enough to move back in deeper into community? Is my heart ready for this? Is, do I feel enough energy? Do I feel the space to not rush the process and to move back in and to actually become a force of healing for others? So I'll just chime in on that. Like, 
you, you've talked about the body leading the mind and the heart. So sometimes you might not be feeling strong enough to actually force yourself back into a community, but sometimes you just have to do it, even though your heart and your mind are still hurt. Mm. Just like go to the church, go to the Bible study, go to the small group, even though you feel, you still feel wounded. You still feel that grief that you're dealing with. Sometimes it's important to let the body lead the heart and mind. Mm. So maybe kind of chime in on that as well. Yeah. And I think maybe that's a, that's a tension there of like, not rushing the process and listening to your body, but Mm -hmm. there also may come a time where you're like, I know I've done the healing and the work and a part of me might be scared now or not, or, or be hesitant, but I'll, I'm going to practice the courage to move in. And that's also, I would say to people who have ever felt that, like, I can't be a part of a church right now. I've been too hurt. It's, It's, it's fascinating to think about it, but sometimes the most faithful and courageous thing you can do is not be in church. It's like, just give yourself a year, give yourself two years to just breathe, be away from that level of community and depth. Because especially for people who have been in church forever and they grew up in the church and they've been leading worship and leading groups. I'm like, sometimes the best thing they can do for their life in Christ is to actually step away from some local expression of the faith to just let themselves be and let themselves be human and let themselves be free. So Mm-hmm. I love the question because whoever's asking it, you know, they love the church Yeah. or else you can just leave. You can just leave and never come back and give up, but they want to continue to work for healing. They want to take their own healing seriously and they want to be a part of healing the church. The church needs therapy. They want to be a part of that healing process, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And so, yeah, I think the listening, the knowing your own journey going at your own pace and giving yourself the freedom to not be in church as just like you'll have the freedom to be courage, courageous to enter back in to the church. So yeah. You have more thoughts on that, Liv? No, that's good. Liv's been in the church forever. He will never leave. He's never been (laughs) wounded. (laughs) He he never will have that issue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I will say that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with the stages of grief very famously. And don't, don't be trying to outquote or outreference me. On here, no, right? no. <laughs> but, but recent grief research has shown that it's not so much linear. It's more like mm. a spiral. Mm. So you could go in and out of different stages of grief at different times. So you might be thinking, oh, I thought I was already over this. But mm. no, you're, you're actually, it's okay to revert back to a prior stage. It's not a linear journey. It's more mm. of a spiral. Yeah, that's so that's good. important to give yourself grace too, yeah. uh, to be mindful of that yeah. as well. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. So the next question, uh, we've talked about this a lot over the years based on, you know, things that I've had to deal with um, that you've helped me <laughs> journey through. But this, this person says, I liked the finding, facing, feeling and forgiving stuff. How does this apply to our life in the church? Mm-hmm. I think that was connected with the last question, too. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it I was. think those were connected. So this person's referencing when I teach on forgiveness, I teach this like four kind of like stage journey of like finding what is there facing. I have to confront it feeling. I have to take it into myself and accept it for what it is. And then after that, you can forgive only after those parts. We want to skip over the hard, painful parts and just forgive and let go. When in reality, there's other things we have to do. So I think this person who, who asked that previous question is saying, I've been hurt by the church. I want to be connected. How does that, those stages, how does the process of forgiveness, acceptance, and letting go come into that? Well, that's what's interesting is 
the same inner mechanics, the same process, the same internal flow that's required to forgive an individual is also required to forgive a community, to forgive an institution, to forgive a country, to forgive the world for being what it is. It's the same process. We're just zooming out onto bigger and broader like levels and complex forms of institutions. So mm. the same process that's required for me to forgive an individual would be the same one that's required to forgive the church or really whoever in the church has hurt you in the process. So it's, it's really the same thing just applied to the church as a whole. So, you know, how have you been hurt? You know, you have to find that. Well, I was hurt by the church because they've preached this message of anti-LGBTQ for a while. And I'm a person who's queer and that has caused over my entire life, some form of psychological trauma, right? Let's name it for what it is. That's the facing mm -hmm. part. And then the feeling part is, well, if I ever want to forgive the church, I have to accept that there's still a large dominant expression of the church that's going to keep teaching this same thing. And I have to, if I ever want to be fully engaged in the, the local church, I have to do some forgiveness for the capital C church as a whole. And then you can forgive. And yeah, there's, there's local expressions, there's local churches that may never be the right place for you. That might not be a healing place for you. That might not be a transformative place for you, but mm -hmm. there are some that will be, you know what I mean? Like it's, it sucks. Cause you might have to forgive an old church in order to fully be, allow yourself to be a part of a new church, even though the new church wasn't the one that hurt you. It's like a relationship. Mm. It's like, if you've been traumatized by an old relationship, you've been cheated on, you've been harassed, you've been whatever, there's work you have to do to heal and forgive that in order to be fully present, open and engaged in the new one. And that would be the yeah. same with the church as well. We have, there's mm -hmm. a concrete, that person said this, they did this, they treated mm -hmm. me like this. And I can't be fully open to give myself to a different church, a local expression of the church until I do the healing work and forgiveness of the old one. Cause if not, I'm treating the new one like the old one. I'm replaying old tra traumatic narratives in the new one. And it's, it's just the same process. That, that's the big thing. The same process of forgiveness for an individual would be the same thing for a church or any yeah. institution. It's the same thing that we have to do. So how does it apply? It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's literally mm -hmm. the same flow that has to happen to, yep. to really let it go. Yeah, that structure, the finding, facing, feeling, and forgiving is such a good process to go through. I mean, there was something I was struggling with in a relationship about a year ago, and you helped me walk through those steps in detail, and it was really, really helpful. And I, I would say the hardest part of that is the feeling, to mm -hmm. feel the depth of it and to cry or grieve or go through some ritual process to let it go, because it's hard to just say, I forgive without feeling it so mm. good yeah really yeah, good those, stuff. Are, those are i like those first two questions because they're connected and there's so many people's journey i think who would tune into the church needs therapy and who are 
I think deep down longing to be a part of a more hopeful expression of the church, but struggling to still have that hope or struggling to heal or struggling to even find a place that they believe in enough to like give their life to, but they're there, they're, they're out there. They're all kinds of new and beautiful and hopeful expressions of the church all over they're just sometimes can be hard to find because there's a lot of other kinds of churches around. Just you. like dating. You, you, sometimes you have to go through hey, some to you find know. the right one. Hey, my boy knows. <laughs> so this next question is pretty similar to those. It says, I'm just torn. I'm evangelical, but I'm absolutely disgusted by the evangelical church. <laughs> so another person who feels somewhat you know, the church is tainted and flawed and how do I deal with this? Yeah. I'm evangelical, but I'm disgusted with evangelicals. That's so funny. What's, what I, what's so interesting about that is, you know, when most people have a problem with quote unquote, the church, right? That's like, even when I have this, uh, this podcast, the church needs therapy. Well, there's a thousand different expressions of the church within a hundred mile radius of you, you know? Mm-hmm. But when we all know what we mean, like I referenced that old, uh, that old David Kinnaman book. I forget what the title of it is now, but you know how they interview. I've mentioned this before, but they entered this is then this is ten or fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. But they interviewed thousands of people. Like, what are the top three things when you think of when you hear the word Christian? Yeah, it was the a Barna survey, right? Yeah, Barna survey. Um, and the the top three things were Republican, anti-gay, and anti-abortion. So I'm like, and that was 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, and that was 10, 15 years ago. And I think that image of the church has even gotten worse, to be honest. You know, the, believe it or not, the PR for the church has even gotten worse over the years. So I think whatever church you could fit within that category is the church we're talking about, you know, when the church mm-hmm. needs therapy. And what's, what's weird about the, <clears throat> when people have an issue with evangelicals is evangelicalism is actually a relatively new thing. You know, the evangelicalism was like a social movement that came out of like the 50s or the 60s, basically, that ended up becoming the dominant expression of the faith. And I would tell people evangelicalism is one stream within a very broad river of the history of Christianity. So it's like, you don't have to be an evangelical to be a follower of Jesus. It's just, if you grow up in the United States of America, there's a, there's a good chance mm-hmm. that the tradition you came up in feels like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, per- I know people are like, let's redeem the term evangelical. Let's <clears throat> reclaim it. I don't personally care because I'm not really that tied to it, but I get what the person's saying. Cause on a broader level, it's, I'm actually a Christian and I'm disgusted by a lot of Christians. Um, did you hear that? My speaker was going off in this room right now. Um, it was a little scary for me. My heart jumped. <laughs> but I just I actually just randomly saw this Anne Lamott quote where she's the writer Anne Lamott. She wrote something about this, is not verbatim, but she's like, the whole Christianity thing can be a bit like, not terrible, but like exhausting. She's like, except for Jesus. Like Mm. the whole thing. And that's so much of the tension of our culture right now. Podcasts like mine, so many podcasts out there, countless books that are being written of, we know what we're saying no to, and we're still looking for what the next yes is, right? My previous guest, Brian McLaren, wrote a long time ago, we all live between something wrong and something real. 
and we're trying mm-hmm. to move forward. We're trying to grow into something real away from the things that are wrong. And it's just, sometimes you're hopeful and sometimes then you see something in the media, you know, a Jesus poster attached to more QAnon stuff or whatever. And you're just like, I'm so done. Like I always joke around. It's, it's yeah. funny being a pastor where twice a week, I just see stuff in the media. I'm like, I literally quit being a Christian. Like I'm done right now. Now I know what I'm doing, but a part of me just has that same grief when I see the, uh, the distortion of the simple way of Jesus into so many different things. So anyways, Mm -hmm. I feel, I feel that that person's what they're saying and you know, there, there is, there is hope beyond whatever forms of evangelicalism you've grown up and have been shaped by. There are, bright wider more inclusive more justice oriented and more life-giving affirmative Mm -hmm. expressions of the faith out there yeah like if you grow up in a calvary chapel church for example and you think now see lives lives actually name dropping the ones he's hating on see that no i'm not hey go ahead bro you say there's a lot of good people there's a there's a lot of loving so what what were you gonna say about go ahead what were you gonna say about calvary Calvary chapel churches but i would say they tend to emphasize a lot of the end time beliefs and preach about that a lot, about the rapture of the church and to be ready and whatnot, instead of emphasizing some of the more kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, tangible aspects of following Jesus and caring for those who are poor and the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, whatever. They don't tend to emphasize on those things. Other streams within church history have though, Mm. but this recent stream of Calvary Chapel has not in, in those similar types of churches. So just because you grew up in a Calvary Chapel church doesn't mean every Christian in the world has always thought like that. And I think that's important to remember this great Mm -hmm. tradition of the church. And then there's that Augustine quote, the church is a whore, but she's still my mother. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so good for this person to remember. He's supposed to, in Livy's my more like, you know, conservative, you know, uh, innocent friend. And he already said whore on here. So he's going to be in trouble. And then he's hating on Calvary Chapel. So no, it wasn't not. me. It I, wasn't me. I love the good Calvary <laughs> Chapel people. I do. Some good people there. All right. Here we go. How has the Enneagram influenced your growth in Christ? Mm. <clears throat> Let's see. I got introduced to the Enneagram over 10 years ago. So I've been working with it personally for a long time. I started teaching it and using it in our church in the beginning of 2017. So I've been teaching it for three and a half years or so. I don't even know. And then I've been, you know, working with it myself. And I was talking, when I was talking to Monica Coleman last week, I told her, and I tell the story sometimes my first semester ever at a Bible college, for those of you who don't know what a Bible college is, a Bible college is a place where I think most people at that time think they're probably going into vocational ministry. So they're going to be pastors or global workers in the church or whatever. And like you, you only get a degree in biblical studies, right? You can have little minors, but it's like everyone's focusing on the Bible. Right. And I took a class there on spiritual formation. And my biggest surprise was they never talked about self-awareness. And even to this day, I've discovered whether it's pastoring, having friends who are pastors, people have pastored for decades Mm. and they're 
barely beginning the process of self-awareness. Yeah. And I'm like, that is terrifying that you have these high level, high octane leaders and their emotional maturity is so low and their self-awareness is so low. Cause my biggest thing is you will never transform that which you are unaware needs to be transformed. They haven't learned to listen to their life. They haven't learned how to heal their wounds. They don't know what it means to let go of their illusions. So they're living with this internal storm. They're being driven by impulses and drives they're unaware of. And that's how people end up doing a lot of damage, especially in leadership. And so the, and if one, self-awareness has been the, the main path for me my entire life, even on my journey towards God. But the Enneagram is as a tool of self-awareness is probably the most helpful specific tool for spiritual formation and for self-awareness that I've ever used or worked with, with people. Hmm. Yeah. Like it's the Enneagram is, you know, not, there's so much great podcasts and books on it. Now you can look it up. You'll find so much great stuff, but it's essentially there's nine different personality types that shows you your default ways of thinking, being and responding in the world essentially. And even as a person who's always been highly self-aware, when I first read the Enneagram like 10 or 11 years ago, I was reading Richard Rohr's book on it. And when I got to my, I didn't know my number at the time, but when I read my number and I was reading through, I can remember I was sitting on my chase in Costa Mesa in Orange County reading it at nighttime. And I was reading the number. I was like, this is so accurate. It's disgusting. That's what I remember thinking. Like this is, there's little nuances here. That like, yeah. I haven't even had the language to name for my own life, but they just said it. And I'm like, whoa, I've done that. Wow. That is how I respond. Whoa. That is not only what I do, but why I do that. So like, I've heard someone say that the Enneagram is like astrology for Christians, <laughs> which one is hilarious, but two, it's completely inaccurate and misleading because astrology is based on, I'm not an expert on it, but you know, when you're born, the alignment of moon and stars, I'm not an expert. That's why, you know, I'm saying that mm -hmm. the astrology doesn't take into account genetic predispositions, family systems, cultural values. It doesn't take into account the actual forces of our life that shape us and form our personality and our default ways. Mm -hmm. That's why they're just not the same, but the Enneagram, if you're interested in it, in no way is it a system that's a threat to Christianity. In no way is it something you're supposed to be scared of. It's an analytical tool. It's a framework that helps you see yourself. It's like a map of your internal life. It mm -hmm. helps you see with more clarity all of the things that you want to be aware of and you want to bring into the light of the Spirit of God, which is the only force that actually changes us. Uh, so for me, I... You know, there's obviously, it gets turned into a cultural thing that's just fun. But if you really work with it, with humility and, and for transformation, it is a profound tool that can help you see your inner life with a great, great sense of clarity. So yeah, absolutely. That, that's been a huge part of my life for sure. Yeah. 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 If you're not familiar with it, you should get familiar with it because it's definitely a helpful, helpful tool. Uh, so we're going to mix it up a little bit, a very important question for you. Okay. And we've yeah, talked a up. lot mix about up, this baby. over the years. Mix it up. Okay. So 
I'm so jealous of this, but you have great hair. And this person asking the question <laughs> acknowledges that. And he or she says, what kind of hair product do you use? See, this is, this is how my life is. I'm out here trying to be serious. I'm trying to give my whatever I have for the people. I have, you know, the, ther- the, the podcast, The Church Needs Therapy, and I still have old friends who just harass me and mock me as I'm trying to, you know, li- live out who I believe I am. But the answer to that, and my wife just came back from Target this morning, and she got me a bottle of, I don't know how to say it's, tra- the, the American way would say Treseme. I'm sure it's oh, France, yeah. it's like Treseme. But I oh, use man. that if you really want to, if you really want to know, <laughs> I use that black can with blue writing or I use, there's a bigger, I forget what the other brand is. There's one other one I use. So you're making fun of me, but that is actually what I use. So, nice. and if it's the person asking me who I think it is, I don't, they don't even have to worry about hair spikes. I don't even think they have any hair left on their head anyway. So. <laughs> wow. All right. Moving on. How do you be a believer when you don't believe or agree with a lot of conventional evangelical beliefs in the church, like the typical church stances on immigration, LGBTQ, America's the greatest type of mindset, nationalism, et cetera? So how do you be a believer when you don't believe or agree with those things? Mm. And the church does or have certain stances on those things. Well, I think this question is within the same flow and similar to the ones that were being asked earlier, you know, about like, I'm disgusted by evangelicals, but Mm -hmm. I'm an evangelical or whatever the first question was. This person says, how do I be a believer, right? How do you follow Jesus? How do you keep doing this journey when you find yourself at odds with so much of the dominant expression of Christianity? So this person mentioned like their views on like the church's views on immigration, LGBTQ stuff, and like American, nationalism. America, right? The, especially the Christian nationalism, I feel like for a lot of people is coming into the center of their consciousness in a way it hasn't been before because of a lot of the, the Trump and the QAnon stuff, you know, where people are hearing mm-hmm. what is white Christian nationalism, right? And although if you would, I were, Livy and I went to grad school, like say 10 or 15 years ago, if you were to ask the average professor there, like what are the three biggest idols for the church in America? I think you would probably hear nationalism, consumerism, and maybe one more. I don't think they would have said white supremacy at that time, but I think people mm-hmm. are discovering that that demon, that idol of white supremacy is and has been more powerful than people have realized. But for the specific question, you know, how do you be a believer? There is a difference between Christ and Christianity. That's just something we always have to remember. It sucks that sometimes that difference seems so vast. When Christianity or the church or our symbols, our rituals, our stories, our practices, all the things we do, you know, baptism, sermons, prayers, laying on of hands, all these historical traditions, these are things the church is supposed to be doing to help people become awake to and alive in and aware of the presence and depth of Christ in the community. Now, sometimes we end up with teachings, beliefs, practices, rituals that are not pointing people to Christ. They're actually becoming a wall 
and a barrier towards people actually seeing Christ and experiencing Christ with clarity, which is a, which is the worst thing you can imagine because the very institution, the very community, the very group of people that are supposed to be clearing the way that are supposed to be the welcoming committee that are supposed to be inviting people into the river of Christ are the ones who become the biggest barriers to hmm. Christ. And that's always been the, there will always be some form of that. And now what I would say to that person in this specific context of 21st century, especially in light of the Trump era and kind of where we are now is it's okay. Sometimes it feels like when it feels like you're off, you're actually growing. Sometimes the more at odds you feel with the dominant expression of the faith, the more clarity you have on who Christ is and who the church is supposed to be. Sometimes when it feels like you don't have a place in the church, it's actually you have a place in the future of the church that is still waiting to be created by people like you. So there are always churches who are on the leading edge of the future, you know, who are expand. They aren't restricting, they're expanding. They're not Mm. trying to take America back. They're trying to move the church forward. Their biggest concern Mm -hmm. isn't whether or not America is great, because that just isn't the God of the universe's biggest concern is whether or not America is the greatest global military superpower that's in place right now. There was no American flag when the universe came into existence, right? (laughs) And there won't always be one, right? Those, those temporary forms of how human beings organize themselves politically change. So I think sometimes your, your willingness to be at odds with the church is an expression of your faithfulness and your devotion to Christ. Mm. There are a lot of people who are sitting, who are silently sitting in churches. They should be standing up and opposing and challenging right now. Mm. There's a lot of people accepting a form of the status quo that is destroying the reputation of the church and Christ in our country. So I think the, sometimes the struggle to claim the fullness of your own life in Christ requires you to be at odds with certain expressions of the church. So one, some of those times of being at odds are oftentimes the byproduct of your courage and your unwillingness to settle. And if that's the case, you have to keep going with all of that. You know, the spirit's going to come and guide us into all truth and you have to trust and own your own journey. And also, like I said, wherever you are, there are more hopeful, more inclusive, wider expressions of the faith, right? There are churches Mm -hmm. that you can find yourself proud to be in and excited to be in and who are leading the church into the future. Sometimes they're just really, really hard to find. So Mm -hmm. it's sometimes your actual depth in Christ sometimes the deeper you are into Jesus the more at odds you will be with the church and that's a weird part of the journey and there's a challenge there but there's also a great freedom to know who you are in God yourself without having that approval of the community and also there is a new church that's being created by many people right now and I would encourage you to keep searching and looking and having the hope to find those and when you find them to 
commit your energy to keep building that for the future. So basically, don't look at me, look at Jesus, right? (laughs) Don't look at Livy, not me. Don't look at Liv, look at Jesus. So it's it's just, it's, that's, you know, that's why we started Imagine. Was, you know, on our website says, Imagine is a church that's committed to following Jesus into the future. Like, I can easily just give up, but I'm, but I like, like we say, we, you know, from Richard Rohr, the Center for Action and Contemplation, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Yes, the critiques, the, the podcasts like this where we're saying, here's where the church needs therapy. Here's where the church needs mm-hmm. healing. Yes, that all needs to be said. That's a part of the finding and facing and naming of things. But after that, we also need millions and millions of people who have the courage to create new forms of it. We need people who are willing to give their life to fight for a more expansive future of the faith, you know, to show you don't have to leave the church to grow in Christ. You can keep allowing your image of Christ to get bigger and wider and more expansive. And and you don't have to leave the church to do that. Hold on. My daughter, what's my favorite color? The rainbow. Uh, How about right now? Orange. Orange. My daughter just yelled through the door, what's my favorite color of the rainbow? <laughs> so you got that for the future of the church, and now everybody knows my favorite color of the rainbow is orange right now. Love it. Uh, next question, is murder ever justified? Oh, damn. <laughs> just an easy one for you. <laughs> is murder ever justified? Hmm violence is a very very difficult thing to have to wrestle with in the bible because there's a lot of it you know even my daughter who's four years old right Michaela brave she just knocked on the door and yelled through it while i'm doing this and we have she has like you know five different kids bibles that people have given her right and it's really, it's funny to me, the one she likes the most, and it's a kid's Bible too, is the least, like some of them were like, my princess story Bible. So it's like a short story, then it's like sweet thought for the day. Jesus yeah. is always, and they're great, I love them. But her favorite one is the least sort of hallmarky. It's just straight story with no explanation. I'm like, why do you, I'm like, why do you like this one? Why? I feel like this is like the freakiest one sometimes. It's like the most intense. And I will find myself reading old stories from the old Testament. They're kids stories. So they're super condensed. They're like, then God killed the people or then the golden calf was set on fire or then Cain murdered his brother. And I almost like, sometimes I actually do change the words. Sometimes I'm like, I cringe when I say it. Cause I'm like, damn, this story is kind of gnarly and it's kind of heavy, right? Wow. When you're just, that's one thing I appreciate about so many scholars is if you want to take the Bible seriously, you have to wrestle with what it is and what's there. Right. And there is all kinds of violence in the mm-hmm. scripture. I mean, that's a common thing for people to justify violence and war. They're like, well, God, you know, commanded the people to go kill whoever when they took the, the land. Right? Those kinds of things, right. Now, 
I have personal views on why there is so much violence in the scriptures and why there's, there are scriptures that no matter how much people try to dance around it, there's scriptures that are like God commanded the people to go into this land and essentially gave them the permission to drive out, to drive out or kill all of these people that are there. Right. Yeah. Am I, even though there's, there's so much, you know, details to add to it. One thing I would say about that much violence in the text, even to give people a bigger picture framework for how I think about that is the Bible. First of all, the Bible is 66 books written by over 66 people on different, in different countries, on different continents over what, you know, a thousand years or something. I'm 1500 sure you can years. correct me on that, you know, 1500 years. 40 authors, 1500 years. Oh, but don't it's even cool. come it's at cool. me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I just be throwing out numbers in the ballpark, 100, 150, I don't care, whatever. <laughs> and think about it, it's over, it's written over 1500 years. And what I would argue is each moment is, is an expression of how people were receiving, relating to, and interpreting God at that moment in history. Mm-hmm. That's good. So as stages of consciousness unfold within humanity as a whole, you see that reflected in the narrative. That's why, for mm-hmm. example, you see the Bible, quote unquote, change its mind as it moves forward. Like I mentioned that with Monica Coleman about the way the Bible talks about eunuchs and Deuteronomy 23.1, no eunuchs are ever, eunuchs were seen as sexually other because they were castrated, right? So no eunuchs are accepted in the assembly. Isaiah 56, I don't know how much further that is later, let's say 500 years, you'll probably correct me on that. You jump forward however many years in history, now it's saying, well, if eunuchs keep the Sabbath, they will be welcomed in the assembly and given an everlasting name. Then you go ahead another, let's say, you know, over 500 years, and there's a story in Acts 8 of Philip meets, you can read it, and meets an Ethiopian eunuch on the road Mm -hmm. who's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Philip interprets it for him, baptizes him on the spot. Mm -hmm. So let's say they're not accepted, jump ahead 500 years. They are accepted under this condition 500 years later. They're baptized and embraced unconditionally on the spot. So you see the way people view God evolve in scripture. So that's what I would, that's kind of when you look back to some of these things in the old Testament of God commanded us to go kill all these people. My question is, well, did God actually command them to kill people Mm -hmm. or at that particular, you know, hunter gatherer, violent tribal consciousness culture, they didn't even have the ability to conceive of Mm -hmm. the possibility of a God who did not command violence because that's what it was. God is on the side of whoever's winning the war at the time because they've won. So the gods must be on their side. So was it God commanding them or was that their level of consciousness interpreting how God was working in their life at the time? Mm -hmm. Now, you can see that growing through scripture. It's called progressive revelation. The fullness of God is being revealed progressively through scripture. That's my bigger thing of why violence to me isn't an issue in the scriptures. I'm like, God, what, from my perspective, 
we have the vantage point now to say God wasn't commanding them to kill women and children. That's insane. But as the spirit was working to draw them forward, that was how they interpreted at the time. And now that raises all kinds of questions about scripture, about inspiration, about, but the scripture says God did that. That's sort of way beyond the scope of right now. But that is how I look at it when, when it comes to violence in the text. Yeah. Now, with that said, everything moves forward to the fullness of the divine being expressed in and through Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, I think what you see from Jesus's teachings and embodied in his life is an absolute commitment to nonviolence, which I understand, I think is one of the hardest elements of the way of Jesus is a commitment to nonviolence. And most of the church in America doesn't believe that, you know, think if you, you don't, you know, we have a church that is consistently votes to go to war. So they're really not committed to the peaceable Jesus who's committed to nonviolence, but not only in Jesus's teaching, does he commit, does he preach nonviolence the whole way through, but in his crucifixion on the cross, he mm. embodies a nonviolent path. He refuses to use the same tactics of Rome yes. to fight them. He doesn't pick up a sword. He does. Jesus doesn't put people on a cross. He, Jesus doesn't build crosses for people. He bears crosses for mm. people. He embodies the nonviolent path all of the way through and shows us the fullness of life is on the other side of yeah. death. It's not from taking control and trying to kill other people. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to like, when you get into specific situations of, well, what if this person's doing this and I try to kill them, you know, and people have those things. It's like, there are times where I will understand, I can understand why a person defends themselves. I can understand why a person does what they do, Yeah. but is it ever a reflection of the fullness and the highest expression of the spirit that's reflected in Jesus? No. But at the same time, in real life, I will, even if I don't condone it, I can understand in certain situations why a person defends themselves. Yeah, of course I understand. But is, is it ever fully justified in the sense of where it's an expression of the highest level of the kingdom of God or the, the most truest expression of the way of Jesus? From my perspective, what I see, no. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But it's also in our yeah. day-to-day life, it's extremely complex. But I think at the heart of the kingdom of God is a commitment to nonviolence, which was brought back into the cultural imagination through through the teachings of Jesus, through Gandhi, then from Gandhi to MLK, and now to an entire generation of peace activists. So it's fascinating. It took a Hindu peace activist to remind us how nonviolence is at the heart of the way of Jesus. And then a black Baptist preacher who became a civil rights and an icon of freedom as a whole to even show us further that nonviolence was and peace was a part of the path. So that to me, I think on our, on a cultural day-to-day social and political level is one of the hardest things. But for me as a person who takes Jesus seriously, I'm like, I don't know how this works out practically. I'm not saying anything about how any of this works Mm -hmm. Or is the most practical or pragmatic? It's not. But in the scriptures, I think nonviolence is right at the center of Jesus's vision of what a fullness of humanity looks like. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Yeah. 
All right, another easy one. Come on, baby. Is is hell a physical oh, location? Oh no, we're we're already Come in on. hell already. <laughs> oh, is what was it? What was the question? Is hell a physical location? Hmm. Is hell a physical location? Hmm. Well, first of all, I am a person who's very, very hesitant and very uncomfortable prognosticating or speculating about details of the afterlife, whether it's good or bad, right? Whether it's Livy has this, Livy has this unique like vision where he knows exactly what heaven's <laughs> going to be like. And he will tell you all about it. Oh, he'll tell you what our bodies will be like. He'll tell you what relationships will be like. You know, he's, he's seen a glimpse into the third heaven. Right? Now, cause I'm, cause for me, whatever is on the other side of this form of life dying is a complete mystery right now as a Christian, my, my overall faith, even as a person who knows the scriptures, studied the scriptures, when I look at the, the po- it's poetry, by the way, this poetic vision of Revelation 21 that looks to the future of the new heavens and a new earth. And this, to me, what I see is there's a vision of unity and healing and wholeness. So to me, to be a Christian is to somehow have the faith and the hope that in the end, life is moving towards wholeness and healing and oneness, right? That's my, that's how, that's the hope that I have for the future. Do I know the details of what that looks like? No. People like the return of Jesus. What, and I just think, well, does Jesus come back as what Jesus of Nazareth? It's like, Hey, look, Jesus is 33 still. And he's back. And he like does a little magical incantation and heaven and earth become one. Do I think it looks like that? Probably not. The reason why I say it is, I don't know. And no, first of all, nobody knows. Exactly how that's going to look. Heaven, hell, good or bad, right? That's just, that's just the, that's the situation we're in as humans. Now let's go back to everybody's favorite book on hell. It's a book called Love Wins, right? Written by Rob Bell in 2010. Wow. And uh, (laughs) what's really, and I would encourage people who are interested in, hell and afterlife to read the book it's a great book it's one of the most controversial books written i would say in the united states of america religiously the past 15 or 20 years but what's so fascinating about this book is the author doesn't have a thesis right there's not here's what i think about hell what the author so brilliantly does is ask hard questions about hell and interpret historical views on hell like hey by the way the church has not been unified in what they believe about hell you know some people have believed this some people have believed that c.s lewis thought this this theologian has said this there's like there is a complexity and a diversity of views on hell historically in the church right people who are Priests, people who are writers, people who are considered saints have different views on hell. For example, Livy, would you, if you dare to say publicly that you're a proponent of what's called annihilationism, I don't know if he's allowed yeah. to say that publicly. Uh, I, I, 
Livy, hold that view more Livy. so than the traditional <laughs> view. Yes. I always joke that Livy's always worried about, you know, Livy's the most political non-pastor I've ever seen. He's always worried about his constituency. I'm like, yep, get those emails from your congregation on Monday morning, even though he's not like pastoring in a local church right now. But I think that speaks to how scary it is to be honest about some yeah. of these views the church yeah. is very like anal about. But tell, what is annihilationism? Because some people probably yeah. don't even know that's an option. Annihilationism, or otherwise known as conditional immortality, is the idea that some people won't be saved and the human soul is not naturally immortal. Eternal Wait, well, existence how, how is becomes so well said? You got notes in front of you? You got of notes God in front of you? Are you preaching a sermon? <laughs> I All looked right, it up ahead, just so ahead. I make sure I get it right. <laughs> go ahead. The human soul is not naturally immortal, and eternal existence is a gift of God to those who follow Jesus and the people who don't repent will be punished. But this period of conscious punishment will be temporary. And then when Jesus comes back at the final resurrection, uh, they will be destroyed and essentially cease to exist. So a lot like of the biblical fire, me, Come on. <laughs> well, the biblical fire imagery is consuming rather than tormenting. It consumes you. It doesn't torment you. It, it, it extinguishes your existence. So essentially people who are annihilationists believe for a, one who goes to hell, they're not going to experience a, some conscious form of punishment forever. That actually what annihilationists believe is, to go to hell is to cease to exist. So it's not, oh, I'm being consciously tormented. It's like you, mm -hmm. your being itself is somehow extinguished. Now, I'm not saying I believe that, but that is, that is a belief that many Christians, it's, it's a fringe belief. It's not, I don't think it's the dominant one for sure, but that is an example of some people like the general view of hell is what I joke around and call ECT. It's like eternal conscious torment. Right. Like as if well, you're a name. being that's... like you are right now and you're going to go to some hell that is a physical location and be consciously mm -hmm. tormented forever. 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 Like you're consciously yeah. punished forever. I yeah. definitely don't believe that. Right. That's Shocker. scary to me. <laughs> now an annihilationist says, well, okay, you're not going to be tormented forever, but like what hell is, is you don't go on into eternity with Christ, but actually you are, your, your being is extinguished essentially. Now I don't believe that either really, but that goes to show there is a diversity of beliefs when it comes to hell. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's always important to show people. It's not as simple as like, well, it's just, it's the heaven, it's all good, or hell, you're going to be punished yeah. forever. I think more and more people are recognizing that that can't be the only way to view the story of eternity, because if there is a loving God who is, no matter how people spin it, if there's a loving God who's willing to allow people to be consciously tormented and punished forever, I want nothing to do with that God. And I would probably find myself in that camp of people. So... Yeah. For the question, I don't have an answer for that. I really don't. That was my long way of saying I don't have an answer for is hell yeah. a physical location. So for some people, hell is just separation. Hell, mm -hmm. and especially for me, and that's one of the brilliant things about that book, Love Wins, is the author shows us the majority of times when hell is mentioned in the Bible, it's actually talking about 
how our life on earth can become a place of destruction and damage and darkness and alienation and loneliness and addiction or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes Jesus uses the word hell. He uses the word Gehenna, which lived, what was Gehenna back in the day? Uh, a valley near Jerusalem where they used to actually in the Old Testament times sacrifice children to idols. And then in the New Testament times, it became like a trash heap, a trash dump where like dogs, wild dogs would go and gnash their teeth or try to scavenge around the Yeah, so hell, so Gehenna, when Jesus says something about hell, he's saying Gehenna. And if you lived around him at the time, you'd be like, oh yeah, like we know what Gehenna is. It's two miles that way. Yeah, and And they would burn trash. Exactly. Here's the interesting thing is over in Gehenna, Literally, Gehenna, when you say like, well, 2020 was a dumpster fire, Gehenna was like literally a dumpster fire. <laughs> so 2020 was yeah. Gehenna. It was hell. It was like Gehenna. Yeah. And so what's interesting is Gehenna was a place where they would burn trash. So there was fire. And when they say gnashing of teeth, there was dogs weren't domesticated back then. They were wild dogs. So wild dogs would be over there fighting for food and trash and they would be like, we, like gnashing their teeth and fighting so those references to fire those references to the weeping and gnashing of teeth were oh yeah you see fire when you look over there and you hear the dogs when you're over there so jesus's references were actually to a physical place around the corner as if it's two miles away that everybody would have known now that's Mm -hmm. not the only word for hell in the bible there's actually like three but that is one of them and i just say that because for people who wrestle with the notion of hell as eternal torture, there are other ways of seeing that. Love yeah. Wins, that book, is a great place to start because it's popular level reading and it sort of introduces questions and different views. And so with all that said, my answer is I don't know. But I do know there are different ways the church has seen this that you can Mm -hmm. explore. And I don't think not believing in hell as everybody who doesn't accept Jesus as your savior is going to be tortured forever. I don't think you have to believe that to be a Christian and to be a faithful follower of Jesus today, if that provides some hope on the answers, I don't know, but I'm trying to also show people that that doesn't get in the way of who we are and what we're doing right now. Yeah, such a big topic. Uh, one thing I'll add just to the annihilationism one as one of the three or four I views I just want to add, I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm a proponent of it. <laughs> I'm a fond of some of those things. So for my listeners listening right, in, right. please don't get rid of me. <laughs> I don't exactly agree with everything. This don't stop says, the so. tithes. Even though you don't have a church, don't stop the tithes <laughs> from coming in. I promise I believe in hell. <laughs> But one of the three or four views that people believe when it comes to hell, eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, or universalism, even annihilationism, you look at John 3.16, the most popular verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Even that verse, the word perish there implies an extinguishment, like somebody is ceasing to exist so it's it doesn't say we'll go to hell and be tortured forever that's what it doesn't say it says perish so just things like that in the bible when you look into it annihilationism makes a little bit of sense uh, versus eternal conscious torment that yeah, tradition and, and honestly most people's view of hell and even the churches is shaped more by dante's inferno 
and medieval imagery than it is the actual biblical text of scriptures. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that's that's definitely a, 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 what I think. So, anyways, definitely. hell, violence. Pete, nobody likes the evangelicals. What else we got here? <laughs> that's gonna <laughs> be that's gonna be, that's gonna be that's gonna be the title if we split this into multiple episodes. Yeah. Hell, violence, and why no one likes evangelicals. Damn, that's actually really good. <laughs> that's that's good. <laughs>